Father, thank you so much for another opportunity this Sunday to worship you corporately. I know it doesn't, doesn't feel very corporate as we're not able to meet together in this place, but we're so quick to think of a, a, a building or something like that as church, but in, in reality, any place, any way where your people are gathered together to worship as church, even if that's not in person, even if that's over the internet or over technology. I know this is not the way we would like to be meeting together, but this is still a wonderful outlet that you've given us that even when we can't meet, we can use this to get to hear your word and to get to learn about you in the confines of our own home with our families, but knowing that there are others who are listening and learning and growing closer to you along with us. And so I pray that as we're in these times, these difficult times, like Tony said, that you would continue to mold us into the people that you have called us to be, that you will use us as your people to make a deep impact on this nation, that we would spread a, a spirit of love, of self-control, of discipline, of hope, that we would not spread a spirit of fear, that we would kill a spirit of fear that we know so many have. And so we just pray that today, and we pray that this word would touch our hearts and would change us that you would continue to use us for what you have called us for. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who died for us. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to, I guess, what we could call Simple Church Online. Um, this is different. I, I've not um, preached since all of this started, so I'm still getting used to having to focus on the camera and not look around and not being on the stage, but... Either way, I'm still thankful to get to be here this morning. Um, last week, Kenny talked about um, some people named Judah and Tamar and Onan, and he talked about kind of this uh, shocking and, and graphic story that they had. And so this week will not be um, as graphic, but I, I think it'll, uh, it'll deal with the type of situation. It'll cover the life of a man that uh, many of us will be able to relate to, and so um, we're going to be talking about a man named Gideon today in Judges chapters 6 through 8. And we're going to cover those three chapters. And so I'll go ahead and tell you today is going to be a little bit longer than normal. I'm not going to um, go, you know, do like David Platt and go six hours. I would love to, but to be honest, I, I'm not as in-depth as he is. And so, uh, but we are going to go a little bit longer today than normal. And even saying that, there may be points where we feel a little bit rushed. There may be points where we cover other sections better than others, but um, I want us to see the whole life of Gideon. I want us to see mainly what God did in his life, the blessings God gave him, and what God did for the people of Israel through him. And then I want us to see God's faithfulness through all of the good and the bad and the ugly. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so just to give you a background before we start, the book of Judges deals with just that. It tells the story of the judges of Israel around the time period of 1400 through 1100 BC, so about a 300-year range. And the, the kind of the central theme is the downward spiral of God's chosen people, the people of Israel, into this sinful rebellion. And it's this cycle of rebelling against God, often giving into idolatry. They fall into some type of slavery or oppression. They cry out to God. God um, delivers them from that through these judges, and then the cycle continues and starts over. And that happens all throughout the Old Testament, but it almost seems to happen at a more rapid pace in the book of Judges. It's more easily seen. And so 
that's kind of um, the theme we're looking at. And, and it, it deals with the fact that really the people of Israel needed a godly king to guide them. And without that godly king, they would so quickly fall into rebellion. And that's interesting because um, I, I think that's very relevant to us today. Without a godly king, that godly king being Jesus, to guide us, to guard our hearts, uh, we will very quickly in and of ourselves fall into rebellion. And so that's kind of the themes that we're looking at right now. And I want you to keep all of that in mind as we go through this. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to read through. And when we get to a point where we need to stop and talk about something, we'll do that. And so we're going to start Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So immediately in chapter 6, starting out, we see this cycle beginning. We see the people of Israel doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. They are overtaken by the Midianites and the Amalekites. And then they cry out for help to God. So we already see the first three of the four cycles, of, of or the steps of this cycle, rather. And so... They cry out to God, and, and what the Midianites were doing is they would wait every year for the Israelites to get ready to harvest their crops, and then they would come in, and they would kind of just camp out in the land, and they would use up all of the land and all of the crops. And so it's kind of like, I don't know if you've seen um, that old Pixar movie, A Bug's Life, where you know the ants, they gather the harvest for the winter, and then the grasshoppers, they come in, and they take it, and they carry it off. It's, it's kind of the same concept here. They would get all of the benefits of the harvest without any of the work. And so that's what they were doing. And so the people of Israel cry out for God. And God's response is interesting here. In verse 7, he says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so this is not the first time in the book of Judges that it says the children of Israel turned against God and turned to evil and did what was evil in, in his sight. But this is the first time that we see God openly rebuking them for it. Before he has told them and explained to them why they are being allowed to go through the type of oppression that they're going through, but he has not openly abuked them in this way up until this point. And so we see, evident, it, it's very evident that God is angry with his children and rightfully so. But as he is faithful, because he is God, 
Immediately what we see is the the calling of Gideon next and how he is preparing Gideon to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiasrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and he says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So before you ever hear Gideon speak a word, you get this image of a, almost a mighty warrior, a man that you could think would deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And then Gideon opens his mouth. And Gideon essentially starts this whining pity party. Why us, God? Why have you forsaken us? Why have you allowed your blessings to go away from us? He's questioning God. But then it says, verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian, Do not I send you. God says, you are a mighty man of valor because I have made you a mighty man of valor. I have put my hand on you. I have anointed you. And so you will deliver Israel not in and of yourself, but because I have sent you. It is about me. It is from me. It is not of you. And this is where we really get the first account of what Gideon's heart is really like because it's like he misses the whole point. Look at his response. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? God had just told him, you will save Israel because I am sending you. It is not in and of you. And he says, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So what we'll find out in just a second is that now he's moved to a place of doubt. He does not really believe that this man is who he says he is. He's an angel of the Lord. He doesn't believe he has the authority to say the things on behalf of God that he's saying. And so what he's doing right here is he's kind of calling him out. He's questioning him. He's saying, okay, if you're who you say you are, then do something for me. Show me. But the angel agrees. Verse 19, so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes And put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from sight. So this is where we find out that Gideon, or this is where Gideon finds out that who he's been talking to really is an angel of the Lord because. Gideon was an Israelite. He was a Jew. And any good Jew in that day would have known you cannot look upon the presence of the Lord without being 
stricken dead immediately. And so he's kind of been questioning this angel to this point. We don't see a lot of respect for this angel. But when this angel does this, look at Gideon's response out of shock. And, and he's, he's changed his, his tone now a little bit. He says, Then Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiah's rites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So... God, as, as Gideon's kind of first official act as Israel's judge, um, tells him to do something that's it's pretty simple compared to what he's going to be asked to do next. He tells them to take the altar of Baal, which interestingly enough, his father had, and his father is also an Israelite. This kind of, uh, I think, signifies the state of Israel in this time that even the Israelites had statues to Baal in their own yards and they would meet in groups and in whole cities and they would worship these statues of Baal. And then also Asherah. And Asherah was a, a pagan goddess in that time. A lot of times when Baal was worshipped, Asherah would be worshipped also. And so Asherah was most likely, it was a, a wooden pole or some type of, of large trunk that had been carved into an idol, into a statue, and they worshipped that besides the altar of Baal. And so he tells them to cut both of them down. And Gideon obeys, but because of his fear, he does it by night instead of by day. And so immediately what we see from this young boy, Gideon, is that God calls him a mighty man of valor, but that is because of what God is going to anoint him to do. That is not because of Gideon of himself. Gideon of himself is one who lacks faith, lacks courage, and in, I guess, the simplest terms, he's ultimately a coward. And we'll continue to see that. Verse 28, When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. The men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. And so what Gideon fears happens, the men of the town come after him, but interestingly enough, his father steps in to save him and, and kind of very smartly says to the people, look, 
we've been worshiping Baal. We've been worshiping him as a God. So if he's really a God, why don't we let him take care of himself? Why, do we need, why does he need us to come to his aid? And I think what this reveals about Joash, Gideon's father, is that he probably had no real allegiance to Baal. And you say, well, the altar was his altar. It was, it was on his land. They all came to him to worship. And this is a simple case of someone who most likely saw something becoming a trend. He saw a, a fad that was rising up, and he wanted to be at the center of it. He wanted the popularity. He wanted the attention. So he had no real allegiance to Baal. Um, he just wanted to be noteworthy. He wanted to be popular. And so that's what we see. He forsakes Baal to take up for his son Gideon. And then they call him Jeroboam, which it says uh, means let Baal contend against him and, and most literally means let Baal contend. Um, and that is his pagan name. And, and that's not as important right now, but it will be important later. So hold on to that. Verse 33, now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiasrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. So this shy, timid kid who just a little bit before was kind of hiding behind his father in fear while the men of the town were coming after him. Now he's clothed by the Holy Spirit and he's calling the tribes of Israel into battle. Again, we see this proof that it is not Gideon who is delivering the Israelites. It is God and, and he's using Gideon, but it is the Spirit of the Lord doing it. But then immediately after we see Gideon in and of himself again, Verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. So he immediately comes back. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't have faith. He comes and he asks for another sign even though he's been shown one already. And then immediately after God shows him that sign that he asked for, he turns around and asks for another one. And he knows what he's doing is invoking the anger of the Lord. He knows that, I think as we would say in the South, he's kind of overcooking his grits a little bit. And he says, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. He's invoking God's anger and he knows it. This shows the lack of faith that he has, that he has to be shown sign after sign after sign. And so we're getting a, a, an even clearer um, view of the true character of Gideon as he prepares his men to go into battle against the Midianites. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who are with him 
rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many to give the Midianites into their hand. Listen to this reason. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And so, if it, you probably wouldn't know, but we'll find out later in chapter 8 that the Midianites had an army of about 135,000. And so the Israelites, who are significantly smaller than that, are, are getting ready to attack. They're kind of looking over the Midianite camp, and God says, your army is too many. We need to cut down the numbers for the sole reason that when I deliver you, there be no doubt that it was me and not any of you. It's the sole reason he wanted to cut down the numbers of the army of Israel so they would have no excuse to worship anyone other than him. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. When they heard this, they would not have been shocked. This is something that if they had gone to battle before, they would have heard. Um, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 5 through 8, in, in the, um, when, when God is giving the rules for the army of Israel, he gives certain exemptions for those that... Um, if they're called out to battle, but then they meet these exemptions or these standards, they can go back home. And the, the, the fifth and the last reason that he gives is that those who are fearful may go back home because they may cause others to be fearful. Fear spreads. And so this would not have been uncommon, but look what it says. It says, then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So he tells them, as any Israelite leader would, if you're fearful, you can go home now, you can leave. And over two-thirds of them go home. So maybe Gideon um, was not rare in his, in his cowardice and his lack of faith. Maybe he was kind of a product of his, of his culture at this point. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands and let the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So first... God cuts it down from 32,000 to 10,000. At 32,000, the men of Israel would have been outnumbered around four and a half to one. Then at 10,000, they would have been outnumbered 13 to one. At 300 men, they are outnumbered 450 to one against the 135,000 Midianites. And so if, if this is not what God was talking about, if this is not a number 
where when they defeat the Midianites, they cannot turn around and worship only God. If they still find a way to boast in and of themselves, there's no excuse. And so they're down to 300, verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. And I love this next part. It's almost like God knows how Gideon is or something. He says, But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance." When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So God sends Gideon down to kind of look into the camp of, of, Midian, of the Midianites and he sends him with his servant because he knows he's going to be afraid. And what Gideon hears is these two Midianite soldiers, these men who were talking, and one of them had a dream that this loaf of barley, this, this, this loaf of bread essentially tumbled into the camp and created destruction, destroyed the entire tent, the entire army of the Midianites. And they know immediately that this is a sign of Gideon. And if you'll, you'll think back when the angel of the Lord showed up to Gideon, he was threshing wheat. And then when, the, when God showed his first sign where he took up the things from the altar with fire, one of the things he consumed with fire was the, the unleavened cakes, the cakes of bread that Gideon had put there. And so even they knew this was a sign of Gideon. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Notice there's no swords or weapons. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. That's an interesting battle cry, isn't it? This young kid who was shy and timid and, and God tells him he'll deliver Israel through him and he's making excuses to God of why he can't do it. In other words, he's scared. All of a sudden now is leading people into battle and he's not saying for the Lord, he's saying for the Lord and for Gideon. It's almost like now he's at the other extreme. He's let the power go to his head a little bit. Verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out, 
a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshetah toward Zerah, as far as the borders of Abel Mahalo by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So God does exactly what he will do. He will defeat the army of the Midianites with Gideon and 300 Israelite men. And the Israelite men never have to raise a sword. All they do is they shout and they blow these trumpets. And it creates confusion amongst the Midianites. And they essentially kill themselves in the shock and in the scare. And some of them are able to flee, but most of them end up dead. And so once they start fleeing, the other groups of the Israelites that um, had originally been called out uh, with Gideon and then he sent back home at the order of the Lord, they all come together to chase after these Midianites who are fleeing. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. So these couple of verses are interesting because what we see is that Gideon is getting to where he's liking this authority and this power now so much that he's kind of going off on his own path. He's now making decisions um, that are not guided by the Lord. He, he's making his own decisions. He's calling out other people to come help him when the Lord said that he would deliver all of the Midianites into his hand just as he had them. And so we'll, we'll see that he's kind of, he's getting a big head here, but... Immediately, the beginning of chapter 8, he's brought back down, and we again see the true character of Gideon. Verse 1, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape, better than the grape harvest of Ebiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So we just saw him kind of getting a big head, and now these people of Ephraim are coming after him, and he's almost like this little boy hiding behind his father again. He's talking to them with flattery. He's trying to get them to calm down. He's, he's saying, hold up now. I'm, I'm nothing like you. You know, y'all were the ones who, y'all killed Oreb and Zeb, and I wasn't able to do that. Your harvest is greater than our harvest. Y'all are so much better than me in, in, in every way. And their anger kind of goes away. They're like, yeah, you're right. And they kind of go back home and leave them alone. But again, Gideon's true nature comes out. And then he goes right back on his journey and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted. 
And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So he goes to these men. He goes to the men of Succoth and of Penuel. And, and you know, you, you may not um, know, but Succoth and Penuel were also Israelite tribes. And so they were brother tribes of Ebiezer who um, Gideon, the, the tribe that Gideon was from. And so they would have been almost the modern day equivalent of cousins. They, they would have been kin to each other. And he wasn't asking for reinforcements. He wasn't asking for them to come and help him in battle. He just said, look, we're hungry. We have no food. We need bread before we keep going. And they essentially say to him, not until we know that the battle's officially over, that it's completely over because, you know, we know how large they are. And if this backfires, we don't want to be caught in the middle. So essentially, they leave Gideon and his 300 men hanging out to dry. So Gideon promises them, the men of Succoth, that he will flail them or whip them with briars and thorns of the wilderness, big thorns. And then he tells the men of Penuel he will break down their tower. And many would probably see this as anger, as unrighteous anger, and, and we'll see later that Gideon does possess that. But I, I don't think that's what this is here. I think Gideon is actually not going out of line in what he's doing in those days um, when you were like a, a brother tribe with someone or when you had a type of treaty or agreement or oath with someone, you didn't break it. If you did break it, there were serious consequences, oftentimes even death. And so the fact that, that um, the men of Succoth and, and the men of Penuel refused to help their, their kin, their, their brother tribe, kind of shows that they were breaking the covenant they had with them and they deserved some type of consequence. And so Gideon is not really going out of line by what he's promising. This would have been kind of considered um, equal repercussions for the covenant they have broken, especially in the situation that this was where they are fighting off their oppressors. And the men of Succoth and Penuel would have been part of this group of Israelites who were oppressed by the Midianites as well. So he was also freeing them from this oppression. Verse 10, now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And this is where we get that the Midianite army had 135,000 men. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and threw all the army into a panic. So at this point, the battle's over. He's captured the only two kings and leaders that were left. The army has no guidance and direction. So the battle is officially over now. He has won, and we see what he does in verse 13. 
Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote for him, he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel. He does exactly what he said he will do, but now look at what he does additionally to Penuel and killed the men of the city. This is where he crossed the line. This is where he went too far. He made a vow, told them up front what he would do. And these were pretty fair consequences given the time and the situation. And yet when he gets to Penuel, he takes it too far. And so what we see is that in his fury, in the heat of battle, he goes from this timid kid and, and to someone who's on the opposite extreme. He's almost this fiery, loose cannon who's seeking revenge on those who have done him wrong. And we'll see that in these next verses too. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So, a little while back, Zeba and Zalmunna and the Midianites had killed these men at Tabor who were also like a brother tribe of Abiezer where Gideon is from. And so he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. And because they did not leave the men of Tabor alive, he's going to not leave them alive. He's going to kill them as well. And it's an interesting approach he makes here. He says, so he said to, his, to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. They're kind of calling his bluff. They know his reputation as somewhat of a coward at times. But we, we see, again, that Gideon has kind of gone to the other extreme now. He's this revenge-seeking uh, loose cannon and Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. And this is interesting. These crescent ornaments would have signified royalty. So what he's doing by taking these ornaments is he's taking them from them off their camels, and he's saying, I am royalty. I am who deserves to be wearing these ornaments. And then we start to see Gideon's ultimate downfall. This is not where it all went bad. This is just kind of where we see it all going bad. It's been going bad for a while, as we'll find out. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They say, Be our king. We want your son and your grandson to be our king. Rule over us. But he gives a great answer. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's a promising answer. It makes you feel a little bit better. Maybe now that things are, things are done and settling back down, you think Gideon is coming back to his senses a little bit. But immediately, the next verse, we see where Gideon's heart really is. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. 
So he says, I'm not going to be your king. God's your king. You need to worship him. I'll take your money, though. I, I, I like that. I'll take your valuables. That's nice. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in, threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. Now, we knew that he had taken the ornaments off the necks of the camels, but what we didn't know that he had taken was other crescent ornaments, was pendants and purple garments off the kings of Midian, which would have been a sign of wealth, of prosperity, of high status, again, of royalty. We didn't know that he had taken all of these things. So we've, we've been finding, or we're finding out now that all the while, Gideon's been kind of making these secret moves. And then we, it talks about the ephod. And the ephod oftentimes, when used in scripture, referred to a, a ceremonial garment that was used by the high priest in certain situations. But we see throughout the Bible and in other historical texts as well that depending on the context, it can also refer to some type of, um, of idol, usually an idol of, of reverence, one that was to be worshipped. And that makes sense here because it says in the second part of verse 27, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So this is kind of a pretty sad, it almost seems like an ending to the story of Gideon, this man who was anointed and had so much promise, but we see where his heart is and where his heart ultimately leads him. And it, it leads him into this worshiping of, a, of this ephod that he made. But then verse 28 seems hopeful. It says, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. So they were no longer a problem. And then it says, And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. And, and that seems hopeful. That's actually a bittersweet statement because before in the book of Judges, after a judge had delivered Israel from oppression, it had used the phrase, and the land had rest. Sometimes it used 40 years. One time it says 80 years. But this is not the first time it said this, but interestingly, this is the last. After this, there was no more rest. It's kind of like Israel had gotten to this point where even though God was delivering them and would continue to deliver them, they had fell into this cycle and this trend where even in their deliverance, there wouldn't be peace. And then as we get into verse 29, we see the man that Gideon was all along. And it's a sad ending to his life. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. It's they use the pagan name for him there. And this is sort of like the author, in a way, disrespecting Gideon by using his pagan name. Um, it's almost like, you know, he was worshiping a pagan god with his father, but then God anointed him as a judge. And he, he comes to lead God's army, but then now the author of Judges is almost saying, you're a pagan at heart. You, you will 
officially be known as a pagan. That is your legacy. And verses 30 and 31 are the most telling. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Now, there's a lot in these two verses. And the first we'll see is that he had 70 sons, for he had many wives. Now, in the Old Testament, God condones polygamy. That doesn't mean he, he um, strips sin from it or that he um, likes it or is in favor of it. But in other words, he, those who practice polygamy, especially his people, he doesn't strike them down. It's, it's kind of like we all know through the scriptures and what Paul says in the New Testament that divorce is wrong. But God does not reach from the sky and strike down those who are divorced, it's, it's something that he allows, and it actually says in Scripture he allows polygamy because of hardness of heart. But in Deuteronomy 17, 17, he's giving the rules for the kings of Israel, and he says that the kings specifically are not to have many wives, lest their hearts turn away. But we will see throughout the Old Testament that Many did practice polygamy, especially the kings of Israel. It was almost a sign of royalty, of being a king, that you were able to have many wives. Even David, who the scripture describes as a man after God's own heart, had many wives. And so by doing this, Gideon was taking on the character of a king. Even though in chapter 8, verse uh, 23, he says, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He says, I'm not your king. God is. Yet he takes on sort of the, one of the identifying characteristics of a king. And then the second thing we see is that his concubine who bore him the son Abimelech was from Shechem. Shechem was a Canaanite, a pagan nation. They would have been one of the nations that God told his people not to intermarry with, not to deal with because of their pagan ways. And thirdly, we see his son Abimelech, who we will, if you continue reading to chapter 9, we see some of the terrible things that Abimelech does and how he kind of unravels not only his family's name, but Israel. But the name Abimelech literally means my father is king. And so we see the place that Gideon's heart was truly in. And, and we see this sad end to his life. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiasrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Belbereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he has done to Israel. We see how Gideon's life turns out to the point that he begins to be called by his pagan name at the end of his life. And interestingly enough, throughout the rest of the book of Judges, Gideon is referred to again and again, but he's referred to as Jeroboam. He's not referred to as Gideon. He's referred to as Jeroboam throughout the rest of the book of Judges almost a dozen times. 
and we see the legacy that he left behind. And so it's interesting that, that we will see someone like Gideon and we will see everything that God did in his life and, and how faithful God was in his life and we will think to ourselves, what is he missing? What, what is he not getting? What is, what's going on in his mind that he doesn't see God's anointing on his life? And he, he doesn't see the signs over and over again that God gave him when he asked for them, when he didn't ask for them. God still gave him signs to remind him of his, of his faithfulness. And using him to deliver the Israelite army from the Midianites with a group of only 300. And, and then the authority and the power that he gives him in Israel where they, albeit wrongfully, approach him and ask him and his son and his grandson to be their king and, and to, to be their, their family of royalty. And how could he not see that and be genuine? And we almost think, how stupid is he? We think he's this foreign character that we could never relate to and, and we don't even think that there's any way we're like that. But the fact is that so many of you are. You are like Gideon. You know how to play the part. You have the model family. You have the marriage that looks perfect from the outside. You have the kids who are talented and they're smart and they're popular at school and they have all the friends and, and you have the job and the money and the house and the cars. You, you, you have the looks, you have the friends, the, the personality that you're able to talk your way into and out of anything just like Gideon did with the men of Ephraim. And you have all of these things, but like Gideon, you don't get it. And so you, when things are normal, you come to church, you come into this building, but you don't really have church. You sing along with the songs, but it's not genuine worship. You listen to the preaching and you nod and raise hands and amen and you take notes and you may even be able to quote what the preacher is reading as he's reading it. But then when you go and you leave this building and you get into your car, that Bible and notebook sit in your back seat and collect dust until next Sunday. Or maybe now it's your coffee table where they collect dust until next Sunday. You have all of these blessings and you still don't get it because you, like Gideon, have someone or something sitting on the throne of your life other than Jesus Christ. You are seeing the blessings as a way to keep receiving the desires of your heart rather than seeing the blessings as the reason to make God the Father the sole desire of your heart. You are worshiping the anointings and not the anointer. And so just like Gideon, you have all of these things going your way, going for you, but you're still not genuine. You still don't get it. And what could end up happening is that you end up as Gideon did. But you don't have to. 
you have an opportunity right now to cry out to the Father and say, Lord, I see who I am and I see who I've done and I thank you for everything that you've given me in my life. You've given me so many blessings, but I've been allowing those things or the people in my life to sit on the throne of my life and not you, and I know that won't work. And so, Father, I need you to come and take back the throne that is rightfully yours because eventually, like Gideon, everything will unravel before you and there is not a thing you will be able to do about it. And you have an opportunity today to call out to God for deliverance. And just like he does with his people all throughout this book, not just in Judges, but all throughout this book and all throughout the world today, he is faithful to forgive and deliver you. So don't wait. You don't know when time will run out. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power that it brings, for the truth that it brings to be able to call us out to study, to examine, to observe how our heart works, to observe whether our heart is in the right place and whether you or something or someone else is sitting on the throne of our heart. And, and even more than that, you've given us an opportunity if we do determine that something is wrong to be able to come directly to you to admit our fault and ask forgiveness and you being rich in mercy and love are faithful to forgive us. And so I pray that as we think about the life of Gideon, we see the man that he was, the man that you made him at times, the man that he was when he was clothed by your Holy Spirit, but then we also look at the man that he was of himself and we see the gap between the two and, and we try to examine or, or try to figure out why Gideon couldn't see you in his blessings, why he refused to put you on the throne of his heart, I pray that you will help us to determine whether we are in the same place. And if we are, to come to you knowing that you are loving and you are willing to forgive us and you want us to come home to you. Again, thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your word that speaks to the most inner, intimate, vulnerable parts of ourselves. We pray that it will do that not just today or one day a week, but every day of our lives. In your name we pray, amen.